Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is our recap of the November sitting. We're going to be talking, of course, about DACA, but we're also going to be recapping important cases on cross-border shooting and the Fourth Amendment. But first, Kimberly, we're going to talk about a race discrimination case, sort of, that was set to be a big one until, as you say, it fizzled out and the biggest news coming out of the argument might have been who wasn't in the courtroom. Well, that's right. So this case is one that we've talked about a little bit um, in our sneak peek episode. It's Comcast versus the National Association of African-American-Owned Media. And the case deals with uh, what it takes to prove a racial discrimination claim, or that's what the justices thought the case was about. It turns out in arguments that it wasn't uh, really about that. It was about um, pleading requirements, which doesn't seem to be as big of a deal to the justices. Um, In fact, they all may actually agree on what's happening in this case. Um, But I say all them may agree. But of course, we don't know that because Justice Ginsburg was not at the arguments. Oh, Uh, The chief justice announced uh, that she would be that she was indisposed due to illness. And the PIO later said that uh, she had the stomach flu. She'll still participate in the cases, but um, she wasn't there and uh, caused a little bit of a stir in the courtroom. Many members of the press decided to ditch out on the Comcast case and go report on Justice Ginsburg. It's not, you know, a huge deal for a justice to miss an right. argument like this. So, you know, Justice for- Ginsburg, though, I recall, has had some health issues recently, right? Right. Well, you know, loyal cases and controversy listeners will know that Justice Thomas missed the kickoff of the court's term because he was sick. Right. He was back the next day. But as you kind of suggested, it may be a bigger deal um, for you know fans of the liberal icon. And that's because, well, she's recently had uh, her fourth uh, bout of cancer and actually missed her first arguments um, in the more than 25 years that she's been on a, on the bench just earlier this year. Um, so missing a, a at least one more now, but we'll see. She has some time to recover. The court's not going to be hearing cases again until December 2nd. So that's all there is, I think, to say about Comcast. Okay. Which is to say almost nothing. Right. All right. So let's get into the rest of the cases then. So that was uh, the court's ending of the November sitting with Comcast cast case. But to kick it off, they heard a case that we've talked about a few times on this podcast, uh, Kansas versus Glover. Jordan, want to tell us about this argument? Sure. So this is a Fourth Amendment case. The question is whether it's reasonable for an officer to assume that the driver of a car whose registered owner has their license revoked is, in fact, the owner of the car. And so, therefore, they have a suspended license such that it would be reasonable to pull them over. And it's the question under the Fourth Amendment's reasonable suspicion standard, which is a fairly low standard. But the question is whether just that one fact alone, without having more information about the driver, is enough to satisfy the Fourth Amendment in pulling over that car. Now, at the argument, it did seem on the whole that the court might be leaning towards the government's view in the case, but there were some questions that went both ways, including from Justice Gorsuch, who towards the 
beginning of the argument, he had a question for Kansas Solicitor General Toby Krauss. And this is against the backdrop of sort of a weird aspect of the case where the officer who pulled over the defendant in the case, Charles Glover, he didn't testify at a suppression hearing. Really, all there was in the record was a stipulation that the officer assumed that it was Glover driving and the officer had just ran the plate of the car Glover was driving and showed that Glover had a suspended license, but the officer didn't do anything more before pulling the car over to check if it was Glover. And so this is Gorsuch questioning Kansas Solicitor General Toby Krauss about that lack of facts in the record. Mr. Krauss, um, many of those cases that you referenced involved at least an officer who testified, speaking about, in his experience, drivers tend to be owners. We don't have anything like that here. We, we have don't. A, we have an officer who said he assumed that. And that's a pretty unusual — you're asking us to make an inference about facts when there are no facts in the record at all, zero. But some of the justices, and perhaps a majority of the court actually, did seem to buy into Krauss's common-sense argument that it is reasonable to at least investigate further by pulling over the car, even if it doesn't wind up ultimately being the driver who has the suspended license. And they pushed back against Sarah Harrington, Glover's attorney, when she tried to say that really at least something more is required. And here's Justice Gorsuch doing what seemed to be sort of his best, maybe his best uh, NYPD beat cop impression. Well, if, if it is, and if your answer to Justice Ginsburg is correct, that all an officer has to say is in my training or experience, one out of 10, one out of 20, um, it's, it's been the driver who's the owner um, of an unregistered car. Uh, unlicensed owner. Unlicensed, yeah, right, all right. Then, then um, why, why is it? Why, why shouldn't we read the um, the declaration here as effectively saying that? Um, that I assume I'm an officer. This is what I do. Right. I assume this is the driver. <laughs> this is okay? Kansas, not This is the owner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. And yes, that was a fun, light-hearted moment in the argument. I don't know if Gorsuch has been uh, binge-watching The Sopranos or what. So before we bring on our guests to talk about the DACA case, Kimberly, let's talk about one other case from the sitting, actually a case that was argued the same day as DACA, Hernandez against Mesa. And this was a case that has already been at the court before. So you want to remind us what we're doing back here again and what happened in this argument? So you're right. This is actually the second time that the justices are going to hear this case, which um, relates to a 2010 cross-border shooting. Uh, 15-year-old Hernandez was standing on the Mexican side of the southern border when he was shot and killed by a U.S. Border Patrol agent who was standing on the U.S. side. So when the case was up to the Supreme Court the first time around. Uh, the justices had a really difficult time sorting out questions of whether or not the Fourth and Fifth Amendment really applied uh, to cross-border activities. I think maybe they threw up their hands and decided to send back the case mm-hmm. uh, in light of a different case that the justices had decided that term, Ziegler versus Abbasi. And this case dealt with something totally different. Um, This case wasn't a constitutional case at all, but instead dealt with uh, these so-called Bivens actions. Um, And there, 
the Supreme Court in the 1970s said that even though there isn't a specific law that allows individuals to sue federal officials for constitutional violations, that the court would just imply one. And for a few years, the court uh, seemed to be allowing that not just for, you know, fourth Amendment violations, but some Eighth Amendment violations and uh, beyond. Since the 1980s, though, the Supreme Court has dramatically cut back on that. Um, and Ziegler was kind of um, kind of sounding the death knell. Mm-hmm. And here, on the second trip to the Supreme Court, the question is whether or not there should be a Bivens action here. So it's hard to get a read on uh, where the justices will ultimately come out on this case. Um, on the one hand, you have uh, Hernandez's uh, attorney, Steve Vladek, arguing that this is just right in the heartland of Bivens' mm-hmm. action. Bivens was about a Fourth Amendment search and seizure violation. That's the part of the claim that the family is making here, um, that there's really nothing different about this case. Uh, on the other side, you saw the attorney for the agent saying that the cross-border element actually changes the nature of the Bivens action. Um, and beyond that, you saw a lot of the justices really um, hit on this idea that even if it were um, or if it were to be an extension of Bivens, are there kind of these special factors that would cause the Supreme Court to hesitate to allow uh, somebody to bring a suit where Congress hasn't specifically authorized that suit. And in particular, um, the chief justice noted some national security concerns that are associated with the border. Here he is uh, in the arguments um, talking about these national security concerns. Counsel, just to go with the first of the things you mentioned, the international relations, uh, there has been diplomatic correspondence between the Mexican government and our government with respect to this uh, this, this incident. Uh, the Border Patrol uh, has conducted an investigation and it reached the determination that the action of the agent uh, was not contrary uh, to policy. And uh, you would have the courts uh, look into this by a, a veil, uh, providing a Bivens remedy that could well come to the opposite conclusion. So that in terms of our relations with Mexico, we'd have one agency saying, This was not uh, uh, inconsistent with policy. We'd have the court saying it is. Uh, And that is the type of thing that it makes it at least uh, a new context. You can say it doesn't make a difference. But in terms of our relations with Mexico, they've got two different things. Uh, And at least with respect to foreign relations, I thought the country was supposed to speak with one voice. There was some pushback by some of the more liberal justices. In particular, uh, there was this sort of concession during the first Hernandez argument by kind of all the parties that had all of the same thing happened, but just the activity had been moved over uh, a few miles so that it was clear that it all happened in the United States, that there would clearly be a Bivens action there. And so I think Justice Elena Kagan really said it was hard to square those national security concerns that would happen, you know, two miles inside the U.S. border with, you know, the security concerns that there were if Hernandez was outside the U.S. border. Here she is during arguments speaking with the agent's attorney, Randolph Ortega. Okay. So a lot of foreign affairs concerns are present there. So, too, a lot of national security concerns, if we're saying that border security is a facet of national security, right? Correct. Okay. So then the question is why, when we just move three inches over, there's a different answer. That, I think, is the question that many people have been asking you. 
That's great. And I believe that the border is real. It's a real line, and it can't be extended. The Constitution cannot be extended into a foreign country. Yes, it is a real line. And, you know, one way to line draw is find a real (laughs) line, I suppose. But I guess, you know, usually the, the, what, the analysis that we go through in a Bivens claim, and I think that this is the analysis that the government wants us to go through, is to ask about are there special foreign affairs concerns? Are there special national security concerns? And the question is, why would there be special foreign affairs and national security concerns with respect to a shooting that occurs three inches on one side of the border, versus three inches on the other side of the border, or even a, a little bit away from the border, but very much involving border security work. So that's it for Hernandez. But um, it wasn't the only immigration case that the court heard that day. That, of course, first up was DACA. And to help us run down the arguments in DACA, we have a very special guest, always very special. Of course. Today, we're going to be joined by the Cato Institute's Ilya Shapiro, who is a frequent amicus filer and who filed a friend of the court brief in the DACA case. Before we bring him on, though, I'll just provide just the briefest of setup on the DACA case. And that's because we've already talked about the DACA case a few times on this podcast in our preview episode. We did a deep dive on it. We did a sneak peek. So if you want more about the facts and kind of the surrounding circumstances of this case, check those out. For our purposes today, I'll just say that this involves the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that has deferred deportations for hundreds of thousands of individuals who were brought to this country uh, illegally when they were young. Uh, The Trump administration has since said that it wants to wind down uh, DACA, and it points to uh, its conclusion that the original Obama-era program was actually illegal, and it says that's the reason why we want to wind down the program. At least that's initially what they said. Um, more on some additional reasons for winding down the program later. Okay, let's go to our guest. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Cases and Controversies. It's great to have you. Happy to be here. And then uh, you were at the arguments, uh, the DACA arguments, is that right? I was. So did you have to get up at like 2 a.m.? and? Uh, so I was in the lawyer's lounge, and I knew that I didn't want to get up at 2 a.m. I think the cutoff time, the last person to get in got there at quarter after 3 a.m. Wow. I figured I wouldn't be too useful for media commentary <laughs> yesterday and today if I did that. So I planned my day around arriving. I arrived right at uh, about a quarter after 9 and going to the lawyer's lounge, the, the bar member's lounge, which is where – uh, you have closed-circuit audio, which is the oh. only place other than the courtroom that you can uh, follow the uh, the proceedings. Now, is it no talking in there, or does it get a little... There's no talking. There's no uh, uh, electronic devices, whether they're on or off. You're not supposed to take them in. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's more relaxed. There are couches. The, the chairs are a little more comfortable than the uh, than in the courtroom, at least in the bar members' area. So uh, I, I often go there, especially for the biggest cases, precisely because I feel I'm more useful as a as a commentator, as an advocate, as an analyst, uh, if I'm uh, better rested. Yeah, I got to say, I was running late that day, and I was really happy when I was still sitting on the metro at nine ten <laughs> for the ten o'clock arguments that I get a reserved seat. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so now that we've gotten the really important information out of the way <laughs> about DACA, you know, the arguments in in this case really are kind of twofold. 
first, whether or not this uh, wind down is even reviewable by courts or whether or not it's something that's left up completely to the administration. And then if it is reviewable, whether or not the Trump administration gave adequate reasons um, for wanting to wind down the program. So what did we learn about the way that the justices are thinking about that first question of reviewability? Well, uh, if I had to make a prediction, luckily I don't get paid based on the accuracy of my uh, <laughs> Supreme Court forecast. I don't think anyone can make a living doing that. Uh, but if I had to bet now, I think there are five votes to find uh, the rescission non-reviewable, meaning that they won't go beyond that first question you mentioned and just say this is an executive action reversing a previous executive action QED. Uh, nothing further uh, to that. I think John Roberts in particular is going to be motivated to take that position uh, because it's the narrowest uh, holding. And also, for that matter, if a Democrat is elected uh, next year in the presidential election, that would make that new president free to reinstate DACA because the court wouldn't have held anything about the uh, original legality uh, or anything approaching it. So one of uh, the issues in this case is that um, the Trump administration is saying this is something that is committed to agency discretion. And so uh, that's something that's just left for the administrative agency. Courts have no role to play. But Justice Ginsburg, right out of the bat with the first uh, question of the argument, said there was a strange element to that. Here she is chatting with Noel Francisco. General Francisco, there's a, a strange element to your argument, because you're arguing this is a discretionary matter. It's not reviewable because it's committed to agency discretion. But on the other hand, you say the agency had no discretion because this program was illegal. In other words, the law requires Mm -hmm. you to drop DACA. So how can it be committed to your discretion when you're saying we have no discretion, this is an illegal program. Do you think that that's something that's shared by other of her colleagues? You already said you think that there are five going the other way, but I mean, does this kind of describe kind of the two sides of that reviewability issue? I I think so. Um, uh, There's a question of where you draw the line in non-reviewability and a lot of kind of um, more detailed uh, legal nerd questions about uh, uh, what is exempt from the the, the Heckler versus Cheney committed to agency discretion policy and and, and all of that. Um, And you're right. The the, the way that the original, the the Duke memo, the acting uh, secretary of Homeland Security, uh, relied largely, if not entirely, on the legal point uh, that Jeff Sessions, then Attorney General, uh, uh, made that it was likely unconstitutional and wouldn't want to defend it in court. Uh, were there policy reasons? Well, later on in the litigation, there was uh, Kristen Nielsen, the later uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, that said, in addition, you know, I adopt the Duke memo, but also, to be clear, there are also these policy arguments. So there's further discussion of even if, uh, you know, even even with that memo out there, can we consider it? Are those policy arguments independent? Are they all tied back to uh, the legal question? Uh, And then, you know, the question beyond that, even if it's just based on uh, legal analysis, is that still discretionary uh, in the sense that 
um, well, you don't have to take that position necessarily. Uh, if 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 and when you're sued, then well, then then you can you know defend or not defend as as you may see fit. But it doesn't mean you automatically have to uh, rescind at that moment. Is there enough discretion there, indeed, to avoid getting into the place where uh, reviewability begins? So that's all um, you know on this first issue that we've talked about. But let's pretend that you're wrong. Uh, I know you probably will never are, <laughs> but. Uh, um, then the court would go to the presumably to the second argument, um, which is whether or not the Trump administration gave good enough reasons for wanting to wind down uh, the DACA program. And here we have Solicitor General Noel Francisco saying that the Trump administration acted eminently reasonable. Here he is um, kicking off arguments in the DACA case. Second, the decision to end this non-enforcement policy was eminently reasonable. DACA was a temporary stopgap measure that on its face could be rescinded at any time, and the Department's reasonable concerns about its legality and its general opposition to broad non-enforcement policies provided more than a reasonable basis for ending it. If the justices do get to kind of the merits of the underlying decision-making, uh, how do you think the, judge, the justices will come out on that question? Did we get any indications from arguments? Well, one of the strongest points that the Solicitor General made, and this is something new, uh, and I think I, I saw it quoted in, in a number of uh, uh, media uh, uh, reports about the case, was he said, we own this, meaning we own the decision. The administration accepts that it has made the policy and legal determination to, to rescind uh, DACA. And if, indeed, uh, there are enough justices who are convinced uh, that this is – that indicates discretion. That indicates a policy judgment, not simply a as uh, referring back to the Ginsburg question that we didn't have discretion. We had to do it. The law commanded us to. Um, then they might be willing to to defer to the uh, executive on that point. Again, I think this would be uh, a five to four decision. I, I don't think any of the more progressive justices are are willing to go there. Yes. Yeah, so we saw. Um you know, Justice Breyer, one of the more progressive justices, really talking about one thing that seemed to be bugging him were the reliance issues that have really built up around DACA. And he wasn't just talking about um, DACA recipients themselves, but a lot of amicus briefs filed in this case um, by business groups, by military officials, um, by educational institutions that also have kind of these reliance issues. And here he is talking about um, the Trump administration's consideration of those I'd like to continue the same question because, uh, uh, look, the best statement of the law, in my mind, it's a very old principle again, was Justice Scalia's writing for the court in Fox. He says, when an agency's, quote, prior policy has engendered serious reliance interests, it must be taken into account. All right? That's Mm -hmm. this case, I think. All right. So I counted. I had my law clerks count, actually. Not just the people who came in. You know, the 700,000, right. they've never been anywhere else. They, they never have to. Uh, uh, but there are all kinds of reliance interests. I counted briefs in this court, as I'm sure you have, which state different kinds of reliance interests. There are 66 health care organizations. There are three labor unions. There are 
210 educational associations. There are six military organizations. There are three home builders, five states plus those involved, 108, I think, municipalities and cities, 129 religious organizations, and 145 businesses. Mm -hmm. And they all list reliance interests, or most of them list reliance interests applicable to them, uh, which are not quite the same. They are not quite the same as those of the 700,000 who uh, have never seen any other country. And so then I did read what you just read to me. Mm -hmm. Now, you want to say anything about the statement you just read to me being adequate to take into account that broad range of interest? Uh, Yes, Your Honor, I do. It also seemed that Justice Kavanaugh was kind of interested in this issue of reliance issues and had the Trump administration done enough. Can you, I mean, did that seem like that's where the merits part of this? um... Well, that that goes to a court evaluating the cost-benefit analysis that the administration engaged in. And, And again, if I were uh, counsel at the relevant time to, to Homeland Security or to the president. I would have uh, written these memos with a little more detail about various things. Um, but I'm not sure it matters that much. I don't know if you, there could be a majority on the court to, to find reliance interests in the sense that, well, what the president did was clearly what Obama did was unconstitutional, uh, and, and but, but we're going to let it go because of these uh, these reliance interests. And moreover, DACA itself, as President Obama said when he enacted it, uh, was meant to be temporary and you have to renew every two years. So to the extent um, there is a reliance, that's a reliance until those uh, the, the, the current uh, the people who, who hold uh, DACA uh, authorizations now until that uh, uh, expires. But, it, you know, that, that's, you know, did, did the administration do all of its paperwork or do all of its math? Uh, the, the challengers uh, really want a remand uh, to force the, to go back to district court, have a new memo, have new reasons. Uh, but Justice Gorsuch at one point said, really, I mean, to get back to exactly where we are now, we're going to go through six more years of process for no particular purpose. Well, if I might ask a question about that, if we're talking about the merits, then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pass off the baton. The reliance interests that we've, we've talked about earlier, I, I think your, your friend on the other side would say we did address reliance interests in a paragraph, and we could do it in 15 pages, um, but we'd say pretty much the same thing at the end of the day, and it'd take another six years, and it would leave uh, this class of persons under a continuing cloud of uncertainty and a continued stasis in the political branches because they would not have a baseline rule of decision from this court. I, you know— that's you know reliance interests are important certainly, but this is different than kind of a question of stare decisis whether to overturn precedent that might be erroneous. Um, you know this is fundamentally a, a different kind of question, and so the type of attitude that Justice Sotomayor displayed, for example, where she said this isn't uh, a question of law, this is about people's lives. You know that uh, that makes for good copy perhaps, but I don't think that's ultimately something that a majority of the court is going to uh, agree with. Yeah, so you mentioned, you know, Justice Gorsuch saying kind of, so what? What if we did send this case back? Wouldn't we be right back to where we are? I wonder if that's um, your assessment of what the Trump administration would do. Would it, I mean, do you have an idea of whether or not the Trump administration would be able to kind of take the political hit, especially given when this decision might be coming down? 
Well, I think part of the calculus uh, of the administration was that when it did this rescission, that would put pressure on Congress to pass a DREAM Act, and they would thread the needle that way, because President Trump has said at various times uh, before his tweets this week about uh, DACA recipients being uh, hardened criminals and all that, but he said that you know he, he likes the DACA, DACA folks, and, and he likes the DREAM Act, and he wants to solve that problem, and he wished Congress did. So I think it was kind of a uh, some strategy going on there, which the lower courts in, in joining the rescission uh, short-circuited. Um, and so I'm not sure. I mean, we're getting into an election year, so certainly it would become a major part of the campaign. Uh, but Congress would feel some pressure as well. I'm sure President Trump would say, look, uh, Congress needs to act here. Uh, you know, I don't think... Uh, I don't think it's lawful to continue this. We're going to get sued by Texas because that's the other point. The, the, the rescission came not when the rescission of DAPA mm-hmm. came. That was at the very beginning of the administration, but only after Texas and a number of other uh, potential states and other parties uh, threatened to sue the administration uh, if they didn't rescind DACA. So I think we're going to be in, in court either way. Well, I guess it sounds like we can just leave everything to Congress and we'll all be okay. <laughs> you know, if, if, if John Roberts, if the chief uh, is, is engaging in his long-term projects and trying to kick as many cans down the road as possible and extract the court from major political issues, seemingly last term, that's, that was his, his strategy in part, I guess, uh, to, to take pity on Brett Kavanaugh having, uh, having suffered through this uh, bruising confirmation battle and wanting to lay low. Well, he's kicked this can right into the middle of the presidential election campaign. So, you know, come next June, and this is just, you know, this in addition to uh, abortion and uh, the Second Amendment potentially and certain other things this term, uh, it's, uh, Congress is going to have a lot on its plate, and, and certainly the, uh, the presidential contenders will as well. Well, great. Well, we'll have a lot of uh, other things to have you on and chat about with then, it sounds like. Uh, and, I, and I should mention, by the way, um, that I filed a brief in this case. I'm not completely disinterested, uh, which on the cover has got some media attention, including maybe from, from you, uh, that on the cover I said that I support uh, on, on Cato's behalf DACA as a matter of policy, but the government as a matter of law, uh, with the idea being that uh, my position is that uh, I would love to provide legal status and attendant benefits to, to the dreamers, the people that were brought here uh, illegally as children and have kept their noses clean and become productive members of society, but only Congress can uh, can do that. And and so, you know, I uh, I you know my my uh, fervent hope is that the court does uh, allow this rescission to cabin uh, executive power. Then Congress feels enough heat to indeed pass uh, uh, some version of the Dream Act, whether on its own or in combination with uh, other other reforms. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. That was really helpful, and we appreciate you taking the time uh, to chat with us about the Docker case. My pleasure. Take care. That was interesting. A lot of off-ramps for the court if they don't want to say that Docker is or isn't legal, it sounds like. Yeah, we'll see. And it'll be coming down, like we said, in the the, the thick of a presidential campaign. It'll be yet a, another one of a million crazy things happening, including maybe when the chief justice is presiding or just coming off of an impeachment trial, tons of different uh, big decisions coming down. So this will definitely be one of them. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Our next episode, we'll take a deep dive into one of the cases in the December sitting about gun regulations, the first time in a decade that the Supreme Court will address those head on. Maybe. We'll see. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com.
Hi there, I'm Amanda Icone, co-host of Talking Tax. Each week, we dig into the biggest tax and financial accounting challenges and opportunities from policy to on-the-ground realities. We bring you corporate leaders, accountants, and industry insiders. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. For more, check us out on news.bloombergtax.com.